0: Hi, my name is Trevor O'Keefe, and I'm the pastor at Olive Branch Christian Fellowship. We're a Jesus-loving Bible church who are committed to studying the words of Jesus, walking in the ways of Jesus, and partnering in the mission of Jesus. Thanks for joining us on that journey today. I've greatly benefited from Jeff's voice, and then I'm very excited that I get to introduce to you today, uh, or two introduce him to you today. But before I do that, I'm going to read his passage. So if you have a Bible, open it to the Old Testament, to Jeremiah, Jeremiah 29. Jeremiah 29, verse 1. Now these are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the remainder of the elders who were carried away captive, to the priests, the prophets, and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had carried away captive from Jerusalem to Babylon. Again, Jeremiah 29, this is verse 2. This happened after Jeconiah, the king, the queen mother, the eunuchs, the princes of Judah and Jerusalem, the craftsmen and the smiths had departed from Jerusalem. The letter was sent by the hand of Elisa, son of Shephan, and Zedekiah, king of Judah, sent to Babylon, to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, saying, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all who are carried away captive, whom I have caused to be carried away from Jerusalem to Babylon. Here's what God says. He says, build houses and dwell in them. Plant gardens and eat their fruit. Take wives and beget sons and daughters. And take wives for your sons and give your daughters to husbands, so that they may bear sons and daughters, that you may be increased there and not diminished. And seek the peace of the city where I have caused you to be carried away captive, and pray to the Lord for it, for in its peace you will have peace. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets and your uh, diviners who are in your midst deceive you, nor listen to their dream which you which you cause to be dreamed. For they prophesy falsely to you in my name, I have not sent them, says the Lord. For thus says the Lord, after 70 years are completed at Babylon, I will visit you and perform my good word uh, toward you and cause you to return to this place. For I know the thoughts that I think toward you, says the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and go and pray to me and I will listen to you. And you will seek me and find me when you search for me with all of your heart. And I will be found by, you, says the, found by you, says the Lord, and I will bring you back from your captivity. I will gather you from all the nations and from all the places where I have driven you, says the Lord, and I will bring you to the place from which I cause you to be carried away captive. Why don't you welcome with me Dr. Jeff Sue?
1: I I am making my way up here. Great to be with you. Um, I have to explain some things. First of all, it's Jeff with a G. Um, My folks spent some time in Hong Kong, so you have to translate to metric, and that's why it's G. And then just because we're friends, you need to know how to pronounce my last name. It's pronounced shoe, and I like to say it rhymes with foot. Um, So that'll uh, be a great way to remember that one. Flourish San Diego is the name of the organization I lead. Um, we started about 10 years ago, and it is largely, we like to say, our name is our aim, Flourishing San Diego. Uh, our name is our aim. We sold that from a dry cleaner, so um, I owe royalty somewhere. And the idea here is that the idea of the church living into its vocation, its calling to be a redemptive presence in the city, to seek its shalom, as we'll talk about today, we think is a great way of capturing what the church is called to. Um largely what we wind up doing is we help congregations and pastors and um, young pastors navigate the great changes in culture so that their churches form the kinds of people that love their neighbors to life. We think that's a great way of capturing what the discipleship process is supposed to look like. So Florida San Diego, that's what we do. Um I don't know about you, but writing this little card to um, elementary school teachers made me very anxious. I was very attentive to my punctuation grammar, uh, and I hope you had a better um, experience of that than I did. My wife and I, we landed here in San Diego in 1999, so, you know, um, pre, what yesterday I heard it was said, the other BC, before COVID, Um, and um, so it's a lot of fun. All three of our girls have been raised here in California, so we... You know, we consider ourselves Californians. I had previously worked on staff of the ministry called Campus Crusade for Christ, today called Crew. So, campus ministry work, uh, mostly on the East Coast, I spent some time in East Asia as well before landing here. And um, that's really all you need to know. So, I hope you're excited because, you know, as we're reading the passage, you know, we assigned Trevor the passage having to read all the hard names. Um, but the idea here of like spending a little time talking about this period in Israel's history in exile, in Babylon, is actually something we think is actually quite instructive to us today as we think about how we experience being part of the church in North America. Lots of parallels, we'll get to it. I'm hoping that after we get a chance to look at this, you're going to get a sense of um, amazement actually that God is up to something, that God is doing something in this world, and that the way in which he calls his followers to participate in that is actually more sacred and more important than we know. Um, And hopefully you'll be like, wow, I get to be a part of that? Along the way, I suspect that there will be something for everyone. For many of you that have been churched for much of your life, you may be looking around the world today and you see all this brokenness and evil and pain and hurt and you think, oh my gosh, this is because the world is evil. Understandably, you find yourself trying to protect yourself and your loved ones from the world and you rightly recognize various threats, moral threats from today's culture and you seek to live in such a way that would neutralize the impact of that threat. Whatever it takes. There's some of you, I suspect, either here or listening, that are still exploring the claims of Christ. And perhaps you, too, look around at this world. You, too, see brokenness and evil and hurt and pain. And you, too, find yourself trying to protect yourself and your loved ones from the cause of all this hurt. The twist, of course, is that you may actually suspect that the reason for all this evil, hurt, pain might be the church. You, you like Jesus, but you have difficulty with the church. And it doesn't make sense that Jesus is for the down and out and the marginalized. But why is Jesus known for who he's for when the church seems to be seen for who it's against? How do we make sense of this? And most of us sit in between this confusion Convinced that Jesus is the way, but very confused about how to walk in, w- in the way in a way that resembles Jesus. So how in the world do we live in a dangerous world seeking the good of our neighbor when our view of what is good is increasingly countercultural? How do we engage culture in such a way that the world recognizes Christ in us? That's what we're going for today. three-point sermon, simply because all inspired sermons have three points. Don't worry, the third one's shorter. Um, embrace the city. Babylon, not too far from modern-day Baghdad, was a powerful enemy of Israel's. We've known this if we've been reading the scriptures and have some familiarity with the history of Israel. And by the time of the writing of this letter, Babylon had come to invade Israel several times, three, four times or so. And by the last invasion, they took almost all the people and brought them to Babylon as slaves. It's about 900 miles, two weeks of walking. And this Babylonian exile is a very dark time in the history of God's people. Because think about it, we're the people of God. We live in the city of God, right? God himself dwells in our midst in the temple. And yet, Babylon overruns us. How does this work? Is God no longer God? Are we worshiping the wrong God? If we're his people, why doesn't he protect us? And all of a sudden they find themselves as slaves 900 miles away, suffering in their Babylonian ghettos. What is going on? deep sense of national despair, a deep sense of being rocked to the core of their faith. Because how is this that God is showing up, or why is it that he's not? And so as the Jews are sitting in their ghettos, I can imagine them with their bags packed, ready, and waiting for God to deliver them. Isn't this what God does? The false prophets mentioned here, particularly in the previous chapter in 27 to 28, This false prophet Hananiah says, hang on, God's going to come soon, and boy, the fur's going to fly. It's in the original Hebrew. Stand back, because God's going to deliver. You know, the the cloud's going to open, bolts of lightning, the ground's going to open, suck all the Babylonians in, and and a loud voice from heaven's going to say, ha-ha, let my people go. That's what Hananiah thought. That's what the people of God were thinking. Yet Hananiah dies and nothing happens. Word on the street is Jeremiah is sending a letter. Okay, let's see what Jeremiah says. Surely Jeremiah is going to say, stand by, watch God show his grace and mercy and bolts of lightning. What does God say through Jeremiah? Jeremiah. We'll go to verse 4. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those that I carried. Wait a minute. This is what the Lord Almighty says to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Who did this? Build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. And you read it. We read this. This is the word of the Lord. What? Build houses? Permits? Funding? Settle down? Plant gardens and wait for them to produce? Have you seen my garden, Lord? Marry have family grow in number, this is going to take a while. And in verse 7, Seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. In the NIV, peace and prosperity are the two words needed to capture the fullness of the one Hebrew word, shalom. And actually, you need to throw another word in there. It's not just, um, so when we talk about peace, we're not just talking about the absence of hostility. We're also talking about financial stability, economic well-being. And we're also talking about the presence of justice. It's the way the world should be. That's what the Hebrew word shalom means. One, the world has got up to. Here we are, enslaved by the Babylonians... And, and is God saying, settle down, live, work, and work in ways that contribute to the shalom of Babylon? The very pagan people that have enslaved us. Really? Really? That's not what I was expecting. I was expecting God would deliver us from this very uncomfortable, ungodly, unsavory place. Surely this isn't God's design. Jeremiah tells the exiles, yep, this is God's will. And their mission is to seek the flourishing of their ungodly pagan city. For if it prospers, you too will prosper. The health and well being of the people of God are tied to, in this passage, the health and well being, resilience, and the flourishing of the pagan um, overlords. God says, We'll get you back to Jerusalem, but for now, I have a more counterintuitive plan that in the end will make far more sense. You're going to grow. You're going to experience life in ways that you couldn't in the comfort of Jerusalem. And somehow in this process, I will be glorified more. Not that that's the reason he's doing it. It's as if God says to the exiles, you are called to be in a strange land, working to bless it. Learn to live life in exile and bless the city to which I've called you. Don't merely see exile, as the place of judgment, but embrace it as the context in which you will live on mission with me. You are the means by which I will accomplish my purposes for Babylon, and right now I'm seeking its shalom through you. Woo! And I would say, as Christians today, there is a similar disconnect that we have in our head as the exiles might have had. 580-something BC. I'm looking at Trevor because he'll have the number. We, too, can be found waiting and hoping that God will somebody deliver us to heaven where all might be right and good. We, too, may be looking forward to the day when we'll sit on clouds and we'll be able to eat and salty and sweet foods and cholesterol related foods without any ill effect. Because that's what we mean by rescue us, Lord, right? There's a sense. And yet it's interesting because the work of Jesus Christ in the cross certainly pays the penalty of our sins so that we might be able to spend eternity with him in heaven. However, it also means that we can be freed from the junk that we have been malformed with, so that we might be able to live for the sake of the world as well. The work of Jesus Jesus Christ on the cross is not just so that we can have payment for our sins, so we can escape this world for our own benefit. But it's also that we can become increasing like Jesus, so that we can live in this world for the sake of the world. For the life of the world for the flourishing of the world in which we find ourselves. And I would suggest that if we are able to capture that second aspect of the gospel, we can once again inhabit the sense of what it means to be like Jesus in this world, looking like Jesus, because that's certainly what Jesus did. In this passage, is as if God says to us, you also belong in a strange land. A strange land where no longer can you have the Ten Commandments on your uh, city hall or in the courts or in your classrooms. You know, right? We get anxious about some of this stuff because no longer are we in a place where Christian values, or at least language, <coughs> excuse me, is a predominant assumption, increasingly gets marginalized, and now we find ourselves no longer in the favored section of uh, society. How do we respond? This passage. Learn to live in life, learn to live life in exile, and in living that way, and living in the way of Jesus, living the way of the Lord, bless the city to which I have called you. It's as if God says, I am seeking, we'll say it, the flourishing of San Diego, Tijuana, Escondido, the, the area. God says, This is what I want to see, the shalom of this region, and I'm interested in. Um, you participating in that. That's what you were created for. Genesis 12, you may remember, is a time when, when God has this conversation with Abraham and he says, you want to know what the people of God are supposed to be? You want to know what your descendants are to be? You are blessed. Why? In order to be a blessing. And all the nations on earth will be blessed through you. Core. Core Peace you know, of what God has called his people too. God's not some cosmic genie that, we, that chose some ignis, insignificant people called Israel to bless them as an end, merely to bless them, but rather God blesses Abraham and his descendants as a means to bless all the nations of the world. God's people are blessed in order to be a blessing. We are blessed to seek the shalom of all the peoples in the world, so in this passage, our focus is not so much that we're rescued out of this world for our own sake, but also to be rescued to be in the world for its sake. And that is a calling. That's a vocation. If you ever ask the questions, what's my life supposed to be about? It's that. If you ever wonder, what am I supposed to do? Am I? It's that. How do I make sense of the world and choose you know, to decide and figure out what a good, world, what, what a good life is? It's lived in that context of God's mission for us as his people. Let me um, offer a few um, slides here to illustrate some of the challenge or the similarities that we have um, as people in exile um, versus thinking about being uh, the people of God uh, at home. So it's like if you're in Jerusalem as a good Jew, um, it differs from how you would think about your existence in Babylon. So one of the questions that we might ask is, you know, who gets to call the shots, right? Who's in charge? In Jerusalem, we get to say we do. We're the dominant culture, right? We get to assume that there's an assumption, and we get to make an assumption that our values are the way it's supposed to be. That's how it worked in Jerusalem, right? Um, dietary laws, holidays, pilgrimages, you know, all this sort of thing. But in Babylon, do we get to call the shots? No, we don't. We have little to no power. Right, We're not in places of authority anymore. This is very similar to our uh, experience right now. Next line. Next question we might ask is, who deserves shalom? Well, in Jerusalem, we'd say, of course we do. (coughs) God dwells in our midst. So, of course, we should experience shalom. And in Babylon, we would say, we really deserve shalom. Lord, deliver us, right? Because that's what your job is, to take us out of these difficult places But wait. Next slide, because I don't remember what it said. (laughs) Who deserves shalom? God calls us to seek the shalom of Babylon. Whoa. What was the call? Blessed to be a blessing in both circumstances. And here's the tricky part. What were the sacred activities or duties? In Jerusalem, it was temple duties. It was sacrifices. Next slide, if we can. Okay. The next, so what, what are we called to do? In Jerusalem, you know, we've got an entire sacrificial system set up, right? So that sins can be paid for and all these sorts of things. Well, wait a minute. None of that stuff seems to make sense in Babylon in exile, and more importantly, the sacred duties that they were called to were ordinary activities. Everyday life sorts of things. Um, which is point two. Embrace the ordinary as sacred. As more sacred than you know. My little card I tried to write in, with my best penmanship. Um, thank you for teaching children how to read so that they can read to learn. This is more sacred than you know. We need to learn how to embrace the sacredness of ordinary callings. See, along the way, and we can have that conversation some other time, we've lost all kinds of vocabulary and theological understanding that connects the average Christian and your day jobs with a theological understanding of how the Lord is seeking the shalom of the world in which we find ourselves in. Because we've separated things into things that are sacred and things that are secular things that are holy and things that are profane We've tended to say if you really want to serve the Lord you become a a pastor or a missionary and then 97% of the people don't go that way are kind of left to settle for a second-class second-class citizenship in the kingdom of God And I'd like to suggest that if you're a stay-at-home parent, if you're an educator, that if you're an engineer learning how to harness the power of a moving electron so that we might be able to communicate over great distances, that your work is providing and meeting the need of someone else, just as that's another sermon. But this is how God uses us to seek the flourishing of others. And so because we've had this bifurcation, we've We've, we've, we've learned to say that only these people get to participate in God's work. And the fostering of our relationship with the Lord really only belongs in an hour and a half on Sunday mornings. The rest of our life is secular and has, and has very little to do with God. And we begin to wonder why the church no longer is the redemptive presence in our communities in the way in which it is intended to be. This is the challenge. Let's look back in verse now, verses five and six. These are the sacred activities that God called Israel to in Babylon build houses, plant gardens, grow your families. Those, sac- those are the sacred missionary activities that God has called his people to. Looks pretty ordinary, doesn't it? Building houses, that's carpenters, masons, bricklayers. Learn from the locals, right? Maybe apply some Jewish knowledge of methodologies and techniques. We need suppliers and middlemen. We need accountants and we need bankers. Participate in trade and prosper the Babylonian economy. Can you see those activities as more sacred than you know? Settle down. Unpack your bags. Go to Tarje. Get what you need to be here for a while. Be fully engaged. Little League, soccer, PTA. Plant gardens, buy rakes and shovels and buckets to irrigate, maybe invent or devise some irrigation you know, solutions. Discover the learn the best crops for this Babylonian climate and planting seasons. We're talking about agriculture and ecology. Plant trees. Eat their produce. Learn how to harvest. Distribute the harvest well and efficiently with low spoilage you going to need millers to make flour and bakers to make matzah and other non leaven options. This means we're going to have people working in nutrition and camel trucking. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Grow the family, basically. Be parents. Raise kids. Teach them Hebrew and math and probably some Babylonian astronomy. Participate in life. Be fully engaged. Because really it's a disengagement is the reason for why we, you know, uh, the gospel of Jesus Christ is supposed to be embodied. And it gets embodied in you, but our bodies wind up being squirreled away with a mentality of not engaging culture but being protective behind our walls. You see what the plan of the evil one is. Do you see that the path to seeking the shalom of the city involves some very ordinary, common, everyday sorts of callings? The sacred ministry of shalomifying Babylon involves our everyday work. All sorts of activities, from parenting to irrigating to optimizing and capitalizing, these are sacred, more sacred than you know. And when you are thankful for God's healing, recognize that God used physicians and nurses and pharmacists and all kinds of people to discover and deliver that healing. When you're thankful that your kids can learn and read, it's teachers. And when you enjoy being in a comfortable home, realize that someone, has, someone else has harvested the wood for those two-by-fours, made the asphalt for the shingles on your roof, and extruded the PVC pipes that irrigate your garden. So how does it work? How does that work? How do I flourish San Diego? How do I love my neighbor to life? I would say, there's no slide for this, but if you want to remember something, steward your vocational power. Steward God's graces upon your life. What does it look like for us to embrace the work or our callings of our, voc- of our vocation? How do we do that to help our neighbors and our communities flourish? Recognize and embrace God's grace, what God has graced you with. And steward it to seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which you have been called. You know, we tend to think, oh, the primary way we're going to do this is by writing a check, right, to the church, which of course I encourage you to do. But even if we took every dollar out of this congregation, you would still be embarrassingly rich as a congregation with knowledge and skills and abilities, and positions of authority. All of these things are God's graces upon us as well to be stewarded for the shalomification of our city, of our neighbors. It's the same thing. And that's what we're trying to activate this morning. I feel the need for an example, but um, I have a friend, (laughs) Trevor didn't tell me when to stop, so I have a friend (laughs) that is involved in a medical device startup, and it's amazing, for years now she's labored over this, but it's basically um, using ultrasound to be able to identify nerves and machine learning to be able to differentiate tissue so that when you're doing spine surgery you don't cut through a nerve years of toiling over this, and I'm like, she's a history major, but she has the ability to be able to bring things together, and so as a project leader of this, right, has toiled to make this device work, so the next time you go in for back surgery, you might be able to celebrate that someone has been spending a lot of time, energy, and effort learning how to Teach machines how to recognize the difference between nerves from other flesh, so that when you get your back surgery done, you'll still have function. That's amazing. And that's not just for Christians. That's for everyone. Now, don't you think that's a great example of how we might be able to steward what we do for the good of all? Okay. Like the exiles, what we're called to is not mope around with a "Woe is me defeated Christianity," when we find numbers dwindling, you know in our churches, when we find all of these things that we, the headlines talk about as being so horrible, So oh, wait a minute. That was no different than the circumstances in, in Babylon when we're in exile. What's different is the posture that we can have toward culture. And more importantly, we've been given the example of Jesus, who came to a lost and dying and a futile world and embodied everything that his kingdom should look like. Oh, there shouldn't be sick people he healed. There shouldn't be hungry people he fed. There shouldn't be thirsty people who gave water. There are imprisoned people, enslaved people, to which he gave freedom. He had time and made margin for the marginalized. Isn't that what it means like, what it means for us as followers of Jesus in a process of discipleship to become like Jesus? To become Christ-like? Yes. So how do we steward all that we've been graced with? To be on mission with the Lord and His mission of seeking the renewal and the redemption, the restoration of all things. To be able to love our neighbors to life. How creative is God to use broken people like us in His redemptive agenda for this world? Can you see how that brings meaning to our lives? Can you see how that brings meaning to the way in which we are able to love our neighbors? The last thing I want to say, and then we will finish, is simply this. Embrace the Prince of Shalom. Isaiah 9, verse 6 says that this is what it's all about. He is the Prince of Peace. He is the King of Kings. And the way in which he will rule and reign will be characterized by shalom Jesus didn't come just to die for our sins yes that's certainly true he did deliver us from the penalty of our sins but he spent the core of his teaching around one topic the kingdom of god what is the nature of the realm and the reign of the king of the prince of peace it would be a shalomifying It would be a journey of shalomification. Pardon my Hebrew. And again, why I should not be writing to teachers. Jesus' central ministry was to proclaim in word and to demonstrate in actions the presence of his kingdom. This means, among other things, that the good news, the gospel, is about the shalom that he seeks and that we can contribute to. And it only comes about beneath the benevolent reign and rule of the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the Messiah, the Prince of Peace. For unto us, this is why that child was given. Jesus heals the sick. He feeds the hungry. He has margin for the marginalized, as I've said. And this is precisely what you expect from the Prince of Peace. And the King of Kings is going to rule in such a way the world will look as it was supposed to look, shalom. No self-serving dictator, No. this is an other-serving lover of our souls. Jesus is a king like no other. The way in which he reigns is we find ourselves consumed by his love of us, his grace toward us, and we find ourselves surrendering control of our lives and caring about the things that he cares about. And we wind up being transformed internally, such that now doing acts of love and service are not unnatural things, but are now natural things because they are our natural outflow of who we're becoming inwardly, like Jesus. That's what we want. We want to be like Jesus inwardly. And quite frankly, we know that we want to live for the good of others because that's what we're created for. Um, And the good news of Jesus Christ is that as we learn how to surrender our lives to Him, we get to be on that journey more fully and more clearly. Last thing I need to say, um, because this is just when this verse pops up in your head, I want you to think about this sermon. Our favorite verse in the Bible typically is Jeremiah 29, 11. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. You know, we tend to think about this verse when things aren't going our way, when we think things are wrong, uh, and we expect God to deliver in some way. And yet this verse... Was given to the people of God while in exile, while they were called to seek the shalom of their captors. I hope you see the parallels, right, with the experience of us as Christians in the church in the world today. None of this woe well, is me stuff, none of this, Lord, hurry up and come back. It's more of how do we become like Jesus so that we can love our neighbors to life. This is what we've been called to as the church. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you so much um, that you continually remind us of the ways in which your ways are different than ours. And that, Father, your scriptures and that your Holy Spirit reminds us that how we think we ought to live oftentimes is more influenced by our own lordship over our lives, being lord and master and um, um, a dignitary ruler of our own lives. And so, Lord, help us to see the beauty and the wisdom that as we surrender to you and we learn how to live beneath your reign, that we might find ourselves being transformed into the kind of people that naturally serve our neighbors and um, can actually look like you in a world that is futile and dying. We thank you for this beautiful calling. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.